Roman Sky is a very melancholy moment within that album. I really wanted this thing to start and build and make an impact. When I think about it, I think about the ashes of his body in the sky. This isn't my first rodeo as, as far as stepping into an established band. Even the smartest people who have lived on this planet never figured it out. What's the point? everybody and welcome to Tracks, the official Avenge Sevenfold podcast. I am your host, Terry Bees Beezer, and this is the show where you hear from the members of Avenge Sevenfold about the music they've recorded and we take you closer than ever before to the songs you love. First and foremost, thank you for being back with us. The show took a little bit of a sabbatical, but that's because big things are afoot at the Special K. No, big things are afoot for 2023. So make sure you're subscribed to this show because there is an awful lot to look forward to. Could tell you more than that, but I'd have to kill you, all of you. <laughs> Don't want to do that. Who murders their audience? Anyway, coming up is the first foray that we're going to take onto the stage as we cover Roman Sky. We are going boldly where we haven't gone before, and that is into religion and the cosmos and the life and death of a 16th century philosopher. Oh, yeah, that's right. He's a philosophizer. And if he were alive now, the guy that we're going to talk about, who this song is about, he would definitely have been a guest on the Joe Rogan podcast. Absolutely 100% nailed on. It also features one of the best vocal performances in the history of this band, and you can take that to the bank. This show was recorded over the course of the summer and the fall, so you've had to wait long enough for it. Enjoy this look at the monumental moving epic that is Roman Sky. There's only one place to start, and that is the story of Giordano Bruno. That is who I was just talking about. He's the man who inspired the lyrics of this song. He was an Italian herbalist, a theologian, a poet, and a proto-scientist. Not bad, eh? He also laid out a philosophy that was based upon the universe being infinite and populated by many worlds. It's fair to say, right... It went against the teachings of the Catholic Church. I'm not picking sides. I'm just saying he was going against the teachings of what the Catholic Church were putting out there. 
verbalising his theories led to him actually being captured. And had he told the church that he was lying when he was captured, his teachings would have been lost forever, but he would have been set free. Instead, he spoke his truth, which led to him being silenced symbolically. Get this, with a gag that had a spike on it going directly through his tongue. And then they set him ablaze. How cannibal corpse is that? Anyway, here is Matt to delve a little bit deeper. There's a lot that goes into this because there's a lot of um, unsettled history in a way. First off, he was burned at the stake, possibly for going against the, the Catholic Church or because he believed different things about the universe. And there's, you know, this happened a long time ago, so people have different um, views on what went down. But the idea is that he was a philosopher that had very much his own thoughts, very much freedom of thought. And he went against things that he felt were incorrect, um, including the church um, and including our ideas about, you know, the universe possibly having no center. And during that time, that didn't bode well for people. And he was, uh, and he was killed for it. I was aware of him from school, but um, it was actually Cosmos that really brought him more into my attention. Um, since we were working with Neil on this record and doing, you know, the, the speaking portion for Exist, I was really digesting all of my Neil deGrasse Tyson information. And I came across Mr. Bruno, but it's interesting because this song was going to be about something else. And Brian actually called me and he felt that it wasn't strong enough. <laughs> it's, all right. So here's where it goes into these little messy webs. I like the idea of, because the, the, the record was so existential and we were talking about things like not only artificial intelligence in the future, but we were talking about things in the past and the big bang and quantum mechanics and physics and the way that we live this world. And what does it all mean? So I thought it was interesting this time, this period in time where they had medicine men, this idea of like the ayahuasca's and the, the deep plant medicine that, the, that our ancient civilizations were using. I thought it would be a cool idea to kind of go into that sort of stuff, but I couldn't really figure out the correct vibe for it. So Roman Sky, before it was Roman Sky, was going to be something of the sort of medicine man this, but then I know Pantera did a song called medicine man. So I didn't want to, so it was really like iffy of what we were going to do. And Brian finally called me and he's like, yeah, I think we just dropped the medicine man thing. Lyrically, we were kind of in, um, I, I think we kind of debated a little bit whether we wanted to do a couple of things. He wanted to have this kind of native American sort of thing, maybe even like trail of the tears or something. I forget exactly what, and I'm always a big fan of, having, I, I prefer to have something sound like it's never been done before. Although we've, you know, failed miserably at that <laughs> quite a few times, but at times it, you're, you're able to blend these certain things like the Beatles did or the great Brian Wilson. When I thought about Native American instrumentation, I just felt like it was just going to really just go to a certain place that um, was a little too identifiable. And uh, I wanted to keep it a little bit more unique. And um, just the way Shadows talked about Bruno was, uh, was pretty incredible. So that's where we landed on that. It became really apparent to me that it was perfect for this record because it was the human experience of this freedom of thought and this freedom of ideas 
and mixed with science and being completely drowned out by the church at the time. And so it became this um, really interesting idea to me. Um, and then I, I hit him up with it and Roman sky just sounded like a really cool title. And when I think about it, I think about the ashes of his body in the sky kind of floating overhead while all these people kind of live their lives and they don't understand the, the tyranny that they're under. And so, yeah, that, that's where it came from. Bruno was willing to consider and communicate new ideas and new ideals and new philosophies. And that is always risky business when it comes to the court of public opinion. You know what I mean? If someone has got a new idea or a new way of being, it's usually met with mass hostility and something that is a big question to ask Matt, but something worth exploring here is, is the world an enemy of new ideas? The Death Bats Club know what I'm talking about. You can't take every wacko's idea off the street and say, well, it's a different idea. It's got to get a fair shake, right? There are ways to do this, and there's ways to stand on the shoulders of the ones that came before you, the things that are proven. Let's keep moving forward and questioning things. And what science does is it really just, it needs to be proven over and over and over. And that's when when they settle on certain things, right? There's things with... You know, I listened to all these books with Brian Greene and, you know, the Sam Harris's of the world or the Sean Carroll's. And there are many things that a lot of the greatest, you know, philosophers and scientists don't agree on yet because the numbers don't match up. But it takes special ideas and, and creative thinking to go, okay, well, let's go down that rabbit hole and see if we can make that work. And so, you know, I think you need new ideas. And, and I, I actually read something the other day. I'd love to read this. And this has to do with Jefferson when he wrote the constitution, which I think is interesting. And this, this plays into like America, right? Where we get these people where there's things that work and then there's things that as we move forward and as the human mind moves on, things have to change, whether it's science or religion or just your belief system and, or the way you run your governments. And he wrote, I am not an advocate for frequent changes in laws and constitutions, but laws and institutions must go hand in hand with the progress of the human mind. As that becomes more developed and more enlightened, as more discoveries are made, new truths discovered and manners and opinions change, with the change of circumstances, institutions must advance also to keep pace with the times. I think this is important because, you know, just because an idea made sense 3,000 years ago, doesn't mean it makes sense now. And just because you've got a wacky idea, oh, I haven't seen the, the curvature of the earth. It must be flat. That doesn't mean that holds water either. Some things you have to agree to agree on. And, and that's a very you know, hard subject with human beings. Um, but we need to be very smart with how we, how we move forward. Last point I want to make then about Mr. Giordano Bruno, and that is, this is a man who died for his ideas. I speak to you, in fact, not to kind of put myself front and centre here, but I moved to the United States of America because I believe rock music can be packaged in a more exciting way and that there are better bands out there that are not necessarily being served. But even as someone who has travelled the Atlantic Ocean for something they believe in, I'm not sure I would be prepared to die for those ideals. So I asked Matt... Can you put yourself into the mind of somebody who would be willing to give up his life for his ideals? I think I can. I think the reason I can is because there becomes a point 
where I think we all go through these evolutions in our life. And I think it depends a lot on your worldview, depends on a lot of what are you living for? If you can't be the philosopher, be the, the teacher, be the thinker, be the outspoken. And I just would never dare to put myself in somebody else's situation. Um, many people have different mindsets on what their purpose is here on this planet. And if you take an absurdist view, there is no purpose. You're simply a clump of cells that happen to be observing itself. You are here. You might as well enjoy the time you're here, but um, trying to change things for the better might be a purpose that you give yourself. Presenting purpose and coming up with your own purpose and inventing your own purpose is what many people on this planet believe life is all about anyways. And then there's other people that go like, oh no, like I, I want to make a bunch of money. I want to get a great job. I want to have a wife. I want to have kids. And I think a lot of times they get to the end of that and they go, now what? Right? There's no real outline of how you should live your life or what it all means. We simply don't know. So I think it's beautiful that some people are willing to give up their life for their ideas because it really adds to the culture and the ideas moving forward. Like we're talking about something in 2022 about a guy that if he didn't do that, we may have never heard of him. And what he gave to society is deeper and more meaningful than many, many, many people that came before him and after him. And this isn't glorifying in any way what, what he did, but sometimes there's those people that believe so strongly and there's just no other way for them. And so I, I don't have an opinion whether it's good or bad. I just, it just simply is. Time to bring in the rest of the band. We're going to welcome Zachy Vengeance, Johnny Christ, Sinister Gates is in here as well. And especially it is a joy to welcome back to Tracks Brooks Wackerman. It's just a shame that the first question that I'm going to ask them all is, are you religious? No, I'm not. <laughs> I love learning about religion. I went to Catholic school when I was younger and then I joined a band called Bad Religion. So, you know, that's how that went. You know, I, I'm definitely into science. I, I love Sam Harris and Dawkins, you know, the four horsemen, as does Matt. So, you know, I'm, I have a very open mind, but yeah, I, I don't uh, subscribe to man-made religion. I, I almost feel the same way. I mean, I'm, I'm not passionately anti-religion, it doesn't anger me so much. I mean, I, I have my own rabbit holes of what really gets under my skin and it's not necessarily religion where, which it definitely ties in and there's Freemasonry involved and uh, federal banks, central banks and all that shit. But it's, it's uh it's definitely the powers that be that are trying to create, you know, workers out of us rather than thinkers. And I believe that to be pervasive um, right now and, uh, and always has been. And, and to me, kind of waking up to that right now is, is, is pretty tragic when you're seeing all the different examples of it. I do believe that there is some sort of harmony throughout the universe. You know, all of our energies and everything kind of coexists um, and kind of, you know, lives on forever and whatever um, friendships and uh, acquaintances and that we make while we're alive is just 
fucking awesome and a blessing. I think I kind of leave it at that. You know, I don't really worry about what happens after, you know, I don't really worry about what happened before. I'm happy to be here. I think it truly is a blessing. Absolutely. An important, the most important thing that any of us have is a gift. And I'm thankful for that. But as far as like religion and, you know, stories that have been told and stuff, I've, I've learned a lot about most of them. And, but, you know, I like to think that I'm connected to all the people that I love and, and um, care about, you know, for, for more than just this small amount of time on earth. That's pretty much the extent of my religion. Am I religious? No, I am not religious. Um, I, uh, yeah, I think recently I've kind of discovered that uh, or re-solidified that I'm pretty agnostic. I'm not full atheist because that, that just says that, to me that says you know something and I just... I look around the world and I try, I try to figure out things myself and even the smartest people who have lived on this planet at the end of it don't really know shit. You know, it's kind of, it's kind of the one thing we all have in common is no one really knows why, you know, like it just, why? Like just that question that seems so simple, but there is a question that is why, why is there something instead of nothing? Why, why? What is the purpose? Why does it feel sometimes that there are all these natural and unnatural laws constricting our lives? Like, what is that? That's, uh, it's, there's so, I mean, I, I, actually at this point in my life, I am going through a little bit of a, a discovery mode of like, what, what do I think it is, you know? And then ultimately what you start to come to and what I'm trying to get to is that point that I just made, like even the smartest people who have lived on this planet never figured it out. What's the point? Why am I going to sit here and dwell on it? It's good to think. Don't get me wrong. I love thinking about it and hopefully getting a, a better understanding of how much I don't know. But at the end of the day, it's, it's, it doesn't fucking matter. You're here anyway. What are you going to do? Let's have some fucking fun with it. I think that something created it. I don't know. I don't think that, you know, life was a happenstance. And I don't mean just life on this planet. I just mean the particles, what create life, all all the molecules, everything on such a... And that's even what we know at this time in history. Come on, man. Like, we're not even... We're dumb as fuck. Like, there's so much more to learn. And it's not going to... It's not going to change that much in my lifetime. So I've, I'm coming around to accepting the fact that I just don't know. And I think that's okay. That's a big question to ask anybody, isn't it? Are you religious? Sorry, lads, won't do that again. But what is worth exploring a little deeper is that the band themselves don't actually necessarily see Roman Sky as a religious song. Ikute. I wouldn't call it an atheist song, an anti-religion song. It is simply pointing out people in our past that were treated unfairly in the name of religion, maybe. You know, and, and this idea is that we came from a barbaric situation where power ruled supreme. And if you got out of line with the religion or the science at the time, you know, science has come a long way too. Re true scientists are just searching for the truth. They're constantly questioning, you know, the status quo and they're, and it takes fantastical ideas to go out there and try and prove over and over again that these laws work or this works or that works. And so humans have come a long way um, in our religion and in our science. And, and I think that um, these are important things to shed light on that. It wasn't always like this and it's not great right now, but it was way worse back then. And someone like this 
um, really is a hero in a way because they had an open mind. They spoke their mind and they were, and they were killed for it. They were used as an example. As discussed up and down every single country you want to name and online and everywhere else, a lot of people have a lot to say about the stage as an album. But one of the things that I think is absolutely undisputed is that this is a really ambitious body of work and it covers so much when it comes to exploring human evolution and who we are because of where we've been and where we're going into the future with AI and all manner of Black Mirror, Skynet, Mr. Robot style shenanigans that could be on the way. But what is interesting about Roman Sky in all of this is that it is a more human part of the stage's story. Well, I feel like Roman Sky is a very somber, melancholy moment within that album. And that album basically takes you through the beginning of our universe, you know, the Big Bang through human history to wherever we're headed. And, you know, on that album, I think there's really two very somber parts. And I think that Roman Sky in, in its entirety is a full song is leads that off. And then I think it picks back up at the end of exist where it just truly gets really, really mellow and and laid back somber. Um, So it really serves a purpose within the album because the album is so sporadic, you know, it starts off heavy, you know, continues on, gets very progressive, uh, almost futuristic at times doing stuff that we've never done. Very technological, I guess would be the, the way to put it. And then Roman sky is very, very human. And we really put a lot of thought into, you know, where we place the songs, what songs we write and how, how we put them. Because if you listen to the album as a whole, we want it to really bring the listener through all, all sorts of emotion. In my belief system, I just believe that we are flesh and blood bound by the laws of physics. We don't live outside the balls of physics. We are simply particles that were put together in a way that can allow the universe to observe itself. And so when you take that approach and you look at a guy like Bruno, who is a piece of the universe and he's starting to figure out himself and the universe or observing it at least for this small amount of time that Bruno will be on the planet and it will all stand on each other's shoulders and we'll all take this, this information and we will test it and we will try to break it down, but we will try to figure out the truth, but that's what humans do. And so where I felt it fit in is if you're going to have things like the Fermi paradox, where are they? And you're going to have things like the big bang exists where here's the, the explosion of the particles. And now all of a sudden you've got these, you know, these clumps of cells that are forming on this planet and they've evolved to a point to where they can observe themselves. They can think they know they're going to die. They know that they're not here forever, but really they're just going to go back into the universe that they came from. To me, that is a perfect bridge of the human experience, experiencing the cosmos and being the cosmos. And so I felt it fit on the record. 
we were all starting to listen to podcasts and audibles about uh, about space and astrology. I was just listening to things because I'm not a very strong reader. And to be honest, like we were just all very interested in this at the time. And it helped with the, it, it became obviously amused to some lyrics and to some ideology we were just having. So, you know, when he comes in with the, with, with the specific uh, reference, I just listen and I go, that's really cool, man. Like, that's a great, that's a great idea. You know, like, uh, tell me more. And then, you know, while we're having lunch, maybe he explains the chapters or excerpts that he's read about him and why it inspired him. And at that point, it just sounds great, man. Let's go. Okay, so we've delved deep into the meaning behind Roman Sky, but it's time to turn our focus to the music itself. Before we do so, I just want to say thank you for being back with us on Tracks. This is the official Avenged Sevenfold podcast. I'm Terry Bees Beezer. Make sure you're subscribed, okay? Because... Not only are we telling the story behind all of the biggest and best and weirdest and most obscure songs in the Avenged Sevenfold back catalogue, 2023 is shaping up to potentially be a massive year for the band and who knows what is in store. Not I, I couldn't tell you a damn thing, but what I can tell you for certain is that Roman Sky is an epic, there is so much to cover, so let's get on with it. Brooks Wackerman, on his first experience recording an album with the band is coming up you'll hear about the only time that roman sky has ever been played live and why that performance was such a nightmare see what i've done there for one certain member but first it's one of my favorite things that we do on tracks here is a sit down chat discussing music theory with the lord of the riff and the head of shred mr sinister gates talk about the stage because it feels like when you guys talk about the stage there's almost a people will get it in time kind of underlay to it is that how you feel post the stage cycle because you can never judge a record straight after you've done it or while you're touring with it but now you've had a bit of space to breathe how do you feel about the stage and it's standing with the people I think it's great. I mean, I have no, I have no problem with it. We knew that we were writing something super challenging to the ordinary listener, and it did exactly what we expected it to do. Especially with it being a surprise record, you know, you drop a collection of songs in in that amount of disarray and um, and chaos to a very embracing fan base. But it was uh, it was definitely pretty wild, especially. Um, because it was such a, um, you know, a result of the simplicity um, of Hail to the King. You know, we had to, we couldn't even touch that with anybody else's dick. At this point, it was one of those things where we had to push so hard and challenge ourselves in a, in a different realm. But being true to ourselves, I mean, it's, to me, um, I'm insanely proud of that record. I think songwriting-wise how complex a lot of the harmony is complex, the playing, but to me, it's very, very singable, um, very listenable. But you know, if you, if you found out about us through hail to the King or even nightmare in certain aspects, you know, you weren't going to hear sugary poppy or classic rock elements on this. This was going to be avenged 
singing what we thought were singable top lines or melodies, but with chaos harmonically underneath, like chords. When I say harmony, I just always to clarify, I mean the chords. Like all the chord changes, the harmony is is so fucking violent and all over the place. And, and so we really got back to kind of our classical roots and a lot of jazz too, exploring some jazz stuff. A lot of, a lot of fucking R&B, a lot of hip hop on that record. It's hard to tell, but it was probably the most hip hop influenced record other than maybe um, self-titled. Yeah. But it was, uh, you know, especially harmonically, I mean, doing a lot of those different types of modulations, key changes and different different things like that. But people are kind of waking up to it, you know? Yeah. Uh, the critics fell in love with it. I think we actually established ourselves as a legitimate band for the first time globally because of that record. Um, got all the biggest offers for headlining festivals across the world and, and we're able to make our um, point that we were a, a headlining band from from then on, you know? Um, and, uh, and so, I mean, to me, it was, it was, it's the most important album, maybe not song. There's not a song that's the most important. I would say a little piece of heaven's probably our most important song, but our most important record is that record that took us to the big boy leagues. So I've got to ask about the hip hop influence there. Cause it's funny when you said it or potentially like I thought to myself self-titled and that's what you said. Cause I can, I can kind of get, where you're coming from with that. Could you explain that hip-hop thing to, to me and the audience? That's, that's a super interesting take, and I love, I love getting really deeper behind the songs in these bits. Yeah. Um, so the song Angels, when Matt came up with that, that melody. It took me years to make my motives clear And the days have not been like just lethargic uh repetitive vocal that was just so hooky and then full r kelly when it goes it's like full trapped in the closet right there yeah that's exactly what i was thinking when you were doing that it's amazing we so for me like and to fully pull back the curtain, like we're huge fans of Trapped in the Closet. Now I like all the inflection, but he takes something and like, I always love those chord changes, but wanted to write, I'm going to sound blasphemous to a lot of people, uh, but a better melody, whether it is or isn't, isn't what I'm talking about. But I, that was my search is to do something. So I really wanted this thing to start and build and 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 make an impact that's the most obvious one then there's things that are just very rock and roll. You wouldn't hear it, but you'll maybe there's chords or stuff. There are scene changes like in the stage and the and the bridge. That's yeah. you know there's some Kanye influence and, and stuff in there where he changes keys and gets darker. But yeah, I mean that's kind of all we were listening to um, with maybe some harmonic reinforcements from some like blues, jazz, and, and classical.
does one first engage with uh, those kind of the orchestral elements? And what are the unique orchestral elements when it comes to Roman Sky? To be honest, Roman Sky is is very simple. Um, I kind of had an Aaron Copeland sort of sound, like, I don't know if he's Americana or whatever it is. It's like just, it's kind of Wild West, frontierish. So it has that. There's an, there is, there are these touch points, as we like to say, where there's the Native American thing in this. And I think that's probably where Matt kind of heard some, some of those, those things. But I hear Aaron Copeland vibe from. It's got kind of um, that Western New Frontier stuff that Aaron Copeland is is now completely known for and what all Westerns, besides Spaghetti Western and the great Ennio Morricone, yeah. it's either Ennio Morricone or, or Aaron Copeland that we attribute those sounds to, which are very different. <laughs> but, uh, but they're like, again, there's, there's touch points to it all. How big an undertaking is it bringing in those orchestral elements? Uh, because it completely, if not redefines the song, defines the song. Because this is a, a slow build up to that big crescendo, right? Yeah. Um, we're very fortunate at this point to have access to a lot of a lot of cool tech. And so, you know, we do a lot of it here, all the demoing here um, in, in this room. And... Um, which is in my home. And basically, you know, we have an electronic drum set and, and then, you know, tens of, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars of, of sample libraries, you know, that sound fucking incredible. That synthesizer stuff, I mean, unique synth pads and stuff like the, there's a thing called the Rolly that can, is super expressive. If you're doing lead lines that get that, that really, um, execute, the many different articulations of a, an orchestral classical instrument very, very fucking well. Um, so a lot of things collected over, over the years that allow us to, to be pretty autonomous when we're working on these things rather than uh, previous albums where we threw it to people that had that and maybe went in. Um, if the guy was in Hollywood or something, we'd go in and we'd, we'd check in like, oh, we like that line. Maybe we'd change that. But now we, we are, are very capable of doing it all ourselves. And, um, and so it's, it's like anything else, you hear melodies in harmony. So it's literally a song within a song. It's just a different song that you layer and superimpose upon your song to add, add depth. It 
It is always great to catch up with Sinister Gates to talk all things music theory. Make sure you are subscribed because next month that music theory is going to take us on a journey through Strength of the World from City of Evil. But I digress. It is time to reintroduce Brooks Wackerman and it's great to bring him in at such an interesting point for both him and Avenged Sevenfold. And what I mean by that is Brooks had been in the band for some time at this point, but this was the first time that he was recording a full-length studio album with the band. And, you know... All voices are different. Guitar players can change guitar tone and establish something that is uniquely theirs, but it is very difficult to have a signature sound when it comes to the drums, and even more so when you think about Brooks's role coming in and sitting on the same drum stool formerly filled by Jimmy the Rev Sullivan, and that is an iconic drummer with a signature sound and that signature sound lives and breathes in everything that Avenged Sevenfold do then, now and forever. So I guess what the big question was for Brooks rolling into this is where is the balance between your own style and injecting that Jimmy the Rev Sullivan DNA into things? I've been asked this before and it's my answer is always pretty consistent where it's a tug of war between honoring what was originally recorded on these classic tracks versus I want to be myself. I want to, you know, I have a personality. Where can I interject on certain fills or parts, even if it's, you know, minutely shifted somehow, I, I still want to have the song evolve. And rightfully so. I mean, this this isn't my first rodeo as as far as stepping into an established band where I have to kind of find my voice. I don't think about it much, to be honest with you, because once I start playing with the guys, I think I know where to take it, where I can respectfully change it without disrespecting the original song. So, yeah, and it's a, it, but I do have to check in occasionally where, you know, okay, well, maybe I'm getting a little too, little too nuts here. And let me listen to the original. Okay, I won't do that. I won't do what I'm doing live. Let me go back to the original. Okay, I'm constantly putting things under a microscope, but then at times I'm not. And when I'm not, that's when I seem to play the best. So if Brian has a riff and we're in his small room at his house, pretty much shoulder to shoulder, <laughs> trying to figure out how to um, form a song, and he has one riff, I'm not thinking heritage. I'm not thinking what would the past drummers do, even though 
it's now in my DNA. I think I'm just going off instinct. So I'd say nine times out of 10, my first instinct is usually the one that I'll run with. So that's one example. Of course, you know, we'll go back and forth. And, and another example is the song Paradigm on the stage. I wrote that drum part and I had that in mind. I brought it to Matt and Brian and they wrote a song around that groove. So, you know, that was something that developed based on that. If I'm trying to deconstruct a part that I'm not happy with, I'll just go into my bag of styles and just try everything that makes sense and hopefully land on my feet somewhere. But yeah, you know, it, to talk about the canvas, I just try and keep it blank and just throw color at it. And sometimes it's a Jackson Pollock, other times it's a uh, Banksy. <laughs> Great to have Brooks back on the show. And I want to talk about, well, I think perhaps one of the best things about Roman Sky is the role of the orchestra. But I just wanted to touch base with Matt about not only the role of the strings on this song and how working with an orchestra actually works, but also how the band have evolved when it comes to writing epic songs. Consider I Won't See You Tonight Part 1 as the first Avenged Sevenfold epic. It's fascinating to hear his take on the evolution of that side of their game and how self-analysis has enabled the band to continue to hone that side of their craft. Yeah, I think the big difference between those older records and, and something like the stage is the stage just has way more dynamics. And dynamically speaking, you know, adding in textures one by one and not trying to quote unquote blow your load too early is something that it took us 15, 16 years to figure out, you know, to do it properly. And, and the way that we were writing the arrangements, it was just all about the vocal and it was all about, um, you know, the more you add elements, the less space there is for a vocal and the less space there is for everything else. So if you've got a good vocal, just strip it all back and just let it be. It reminded me when Brian wrote it, it reminded me of like when he first played the beginning of Buried Alive to me. And I was like, oh, we got to have that in a song. We got to have that. Like when he played that riff. Do -do 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 so iconic to me and like sad. That guitar lick that I heard so many times from Brian was just so, it, it's almost like a cross between like a, a classic Led Zeppelin line and like the Jimi Hendrix Little Wing kind of vibe. Like, and I'm just like, that really, you kind of know when you hear a riff like that, that it really needs to breathe on its own. One thing that we've done a lot of is we've taken things that I think are really good and we've put too much stuff on them or we've moved away from them quickly. And this one, we just wanted to milk. You know, it was all about the riff and it was all about the vocal. And we just said, just leave it as it is and leave it raw. And, and I think having, you know, the human element of Bruno in it, it just felt 
the right way to, to approach it was a human approach with nothing on the vocal and just one guitar riff for most of the song. Coming up in a very short while, we're going to be talking about what I think might be my favourite element of Roman Sky, and that's M Shadow's heroic vocal performance. That's coming up a little bit later on. But before that, there's another performance I just want to bring to your attention. That happened on October 19th, 2017 at the Grammy Museum here in Los Angeles, California. That is where the band's only performance, the first performance and the only performance of Roman Sky took place. And it is fair to say, as we take you through these chats, it brings back something of mixed memories for the guys. Give it up for Avenged Sevenfold. It was incredible. I mean, it's, you're playing an intimate song for an intimate crowd and things like yesterday, Stairway to Heaven changed my world. Um, November Rain, when I point to songs that kind of changed my trajectory, uh, most of them are ballads other than maybe Black Dog and some others. So definitely, definitely an emo boy. And so those types of songs really bring out, I think, the best of me. I mean, I, I like doing certain vocals. I mean, I'm one, I'm one of those guys that hates the sound of my own voice. I'll, you know, I'll rarely go do anything, you know, side side project that includes my voice unless it's something for like Saint Owen or for the girls, you know, or something something like that where they, they want something, they want it quick, and <laughs> I'm not going to source a bunch of shit, and then I try to sound like somebody else, you know. But what I like to, to do is compliment a song. Um, so doing that falsetto part above that, I think, is, uh, is sensey as fuck, you know, but, but it creates an emotion to it. And, um, and like I said, playing those types of chords and over at the riffs, I mean, it's all, it's all really, um, it lends itself very well to an acoustic guitar in an intimate setting. Do you want to do it? What do you think? Thinking of the tempo. No, this is no, no click, no nothing, no tour manager saying... No cheating. One, two, three, four. When you're playing a song completely acoustic, you're completely naked to mistakes, and, and, and it's a tough song to play. I mean, the, car, the chords are... Some of the chords are hard, and, you know, you don't want to mess them up. So we rehearsed for the Grammy Museum, and... We had it perfect, you know? I was completely ready. Started the song, I got through the intro, and my mind completely went blank. I was just listening to the song, taking in the surroundings, looking at everyone around me, and I've honestly, I just forgot the, every chord that I've ever learned in my life, every chord of the song, and it felt like an eternity. So I'm sitting there thinking, I don't know what chord comes next. I don't know what chord comes after that. I don't even know what is a chord. And I go back and I'm thankful when I listen to that recording that you don't really notice it. I mean, I can kind of hear a little blip. But during that time, that I had a million thoughts go through my mind and it must have only been a split second and I caught back on. It was the weirdest experience. So now I'm scared to death to play that song. I think if you go back and listen to the Grammy performance of that, You'll, you'll notice the blip and just imagine that that one second or two seconds seemed to last an eternity for me. It was like a nightmare.
Yeah. So anyway, I'm, I'm super proud of it. And then on top of it, the, the string players that we worked with and, and working with them intimately, like warming up before the, the song and, uh, or before the performance. And I actually, um, redid a lot of these strings, you know, I arranged the strings for, you know, hail to the King and all the different ones. And so, you know, grab a different program, like for Sibelius or whatever it was. And, and just like, okay, crash course in, in, um, arranging for paper. Cause we usually have people that do that. So it showed up, you know, long story, long story, hopefully short, it shows up a complete catastrophe, but those guys were so professional. He helped me make the proper markings over it. And, um, then we'd, uh, rehearse, you know, pre- basically in the stand in the seats, we were rehearsing in the seats. And if I hear, heard something wrong, I'd ask, you know, why is it, it looks normal to me. Why is it, oh, it's because your bar line's wrong or this inflection is wrong or it's written for the wrong instrument, uh, which was a, an embarrassing mistake. Uh, I don't usually make that mistake. But anyway, um, yeah, it was pretty, pretty incredible to work with them and to work with my father and have him play uh, a lot of those, you know, deceptive sort of lines and harmony. It was just a, a, a one of a kind experience and to share it with, you know, a few fans was uh, pretty incredible. very very cool grammy museum was amazing they're super accommodating but it it's not like mtv unplugged where it's just a big stage open vibed out really cool it's tight it's fucking packed and so yeah squeezing my dad in the back there was pretty funny but um you know he made made a mention after that he's like you know i've been on tour with you a bunch of times and i hope you don't take this the wrong way but you know i always kind of wondered why you never invited me on stage and like, well, I never even thought about it because he's played so much stuff. And I'm like, did, did we ever play songs that you maybe once or twice? And anyway, I was just, he's like, no, 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 no. You, let me finish. He's like, I'm, it, it was very much worth the wait to play on this stage with you in this setting for the first time. And he said it was one of the greatest moments of his, of his life. And um, yeah, getting goosebumps even, even talking about it. Uh, it was a, a really incredible experience. I think this could be one of the rare occasions where we are guilty of saving the best for last here. And when we're talking about Roman Sky, I mentioned it at the top of the show. I think that this song is one of the best vocal performances in M Shadow's entire back catalogue. This is a powerhouse performance, but I could sit here and talk for ages about how commanding I think it is and how majestic it is and how it enables the storytelling with true emotion. But what is particularly cool about what you're about to hear is each of the members of Avenged Sevenfold are interviewed individually for this show. So they're not in the same room and they didn't know what each other had said and they all picked a different thing that is cool about him and his vocal. And that is the kind of versatility, the fact that they all had something unique to say about him that sees him rightfully heralded as one of the most distinctive and unique rock voices of the 21st century. So here are 
are the members of Avenged Sevenfold talking about the performance of Matt on this song and, you know, just these general brilliance, all right? I've always thought Matt has one of the greatest voices, completely unique, and I've known that since before we even started Avenged, you know, just since we were playing in separate bands in high school. He was always, you know, when he was 14 years old, he had a full grown-up voice. You know, we're singing in punk rock bands, and we sounded like kids, and he sounded like a real singer, you know? So he's he, he has that gift, and he works really, continues to work really hard on it. But truthfully, you know, when it comes to these performances, his very best performances are when you can just tell that there's true passion in what he's singing, like I Won't See You Tonight, part one. Cry! You know, when he gets the sad parts in Nightmare album, you know, when he's kind of referring to Jimmy even subconsciously, you know, like the end of Danger Line. I mean, it's almost hard for me to listen to that song without getting tears in my eyes for real, even, you know, however many years later this is. It's a hard song to listen to because he's not just singing. He's not just trying to sound good. He's really singing um, important lyrics about stuff that we really care about and I think you hear that in that performance. Um, it just it just comes out. It's just natural. It's just really passionate. And that's when all my favorite vocal moments happen from that guy. I think his dynamics are amazing. I mean, I, I've never worked with a, a singer where he's able to, you know, have a screamo side and sing like Axel or sing, you know, like Freddie at times. Um, so I th- I just think his just how broad his styles are with uh, singing is is what stands out. His phrasing too is is really interesting and and unique. I don't know just how the his syllables sit within the song is unlike anything I've heard or you know with, with bands that I've played in. There's just a great dynamics and peaks and valleys in in his performance. So I'm sure as as a mixer Andy Wallace probably just loves mixing him too because you know it's so musical with how he executes as the embers rose through the roman sky when he's passionate about a lyric it it really comes through he's i mean part of that storytelling is is getting into character tell me will you come when they took your life i'm not trying to disparage this it's just a different thing but it but instead of being thespian uh, about it and and acting it out it's just really like i mean he's he's pissed you know it's a beautiful story and and he's you know the man's in defiance of church and and they burn him for and and those type of things make Matt angry. They make him very, very angry. Um, and it shaped our history. And so it's going to shape our future. And so to me, it all kind of plays in. He's, he's very passionate about those things, you know, and it's just, it's that you can hear the pain in his voice. You can hear the tragedy and he's just an amazing storyteller. It's, it's just very much him telling a story about something completely different than his life's trials and tribulations or ecstasies or adventures or anything. Um, 
Uh, it's, it's, it's pretty amazing to have somebody that can do that. Just before you go, tell us how the heavens flow, weightless evermore, as you walk beyond that door, shine forever true. He has the strength in his vocals that he's developed over 20 plus years now of singing and relearning ways and always constantly treating it like any other instrument, constantly working at new ways to do things and what sounds cool and new, you know, taking inspirations from a lot of other uh, great vocalists and at the end putting it in and making it his own and able to stand out on his own. Like he's just, he's gifted with a unique voice already. Right. Um, but then and you could just rest on your laurels there. He could have rested on his laurels a long time ago on just having a unique voice and a unique sounding voice for rock. And that probably would have taken us pretty far, but he took it the next level and devoted all this time and all this effort into a craft and making it something different. And um, I think songs like this kind of show that because you come in very softly, but it's still a main focus. He's got a doubled... Uh, uh, a harmony voice that comes in very almost falsetto-y. Um, it's just his head voice, but it's it's almost falsetto-y. And then it as as the song progresses, as everything gets heavier and heavier, then you have that crescendo where it's like classic Matt. As you will sentence me, your fear is beyond my As a band member, you know, fellow brother, you kind of take for granted, to be honest. Um, I kind of, you know, just assume that that's how it's always going to be, right? You know, like, it's like, you know, fucking, that's Matt. I've grown up with them. You know, that's what he sounds like, you know, but then you, you know, but then you, when you really think about it, it's like, wow, he really uh, created a, a, a his own niche and his own craft in it. And this song absolutely shows it, um, as I said, with the range from from soft to heavy to the most important thing to me is the feel when he's laying it down when we're in the studio. It's that's something that's always critical is like, yeah, you can nail the fucking notes, but to then add the lyrics that we've talked about already and to then add the feel and the emotion, I don't think just singing the right lyrics and the right notes gives the listener that impression that they need to understand this is why I'm focusing on this. This is why this vocal line can stand out on its own. It has to be felt. And when you see Matt in the studio, a lot of times on usually our ballads, um, but just in general, he, he's very focused on, on feel when it, when it's coming in and like, is this the right time to start bringing in that, you know, classic M Shadows voice? Is it the right time to start doing this? Like, where, where's the feel of the song going? Where's the feel of the lyrics going? Where's just the general emotion? I think that's something that I don't think you can necessarily be taught, but I think when he thinks about it and has done it so many times over the years now, he's just, he just knows what to do now. And it's, it's, really, it's really fun to watch.
you want to know the kind of dedication that goes into Matt's vocal, here's something, I hope you won't mind me telling you this, but this is a band, Event Sevenfold haven't played a show since 2018. But when we're booking this show, I know that there's times in the week that Matt can't do because he's still doing vocal lessons. They haven't been on stage for that amount of time, but that man is ready to go. And I love that. That dedication is something that everyone should aspire to work towards. So cool stuff. One last little factoid, actually, from the man himself. Speaking of Matt, here's how Roman Sky was nearly a two-parter. So we wrote Roman Sky as part one and Dose was part two. So Dose, which came out, you know, as on the deluxe version, it was the only original that we did on the deluxe version was part two of it. And part one was going to be, you know, a little Ennio Morcone influence and then new Ennio Morcone, which was more like Hateful Eight and things that he had done with Quentin recently, which were much more like deeper instruments, a lot less light. Um, we made both the songs together. And then we decided that the record was already getting a little long. So we ended up cutting dose, but I think it's an interesting tidbit that those two songs were written as one big song. Is there a way of editing them two together to make what would have been? Um, maybe I think we'd have to do some work, but I think one of the, I think one of the most interesting things we've ever done is the end of that song because it's constantly switching keys and constantly um, evolving and Brian to play something that's cohesive over it and listenable with the chords never really repeating and the choir. And then that was, now that's a story trying to get that choir to figure out how to sing those parts because they're used to being given something and then they just, and they're in a key and they're singing it and then on to the next thing. But this thing is going like, ah. it was really like pulling teeth and they were brilliant. They were great, but it was just like, what, what do you, it was like, what are you trying to make us do? And I remember me and Brian got in like a little argument because it was getting so tedious and they just couldn't wrap their head around those key changes and the chords that were being sung. And we wanted them to be a little bit like some blue notes and some things that were like rubbing a little bit with the chords. And so that was throwing them off because they weren't used to that. And um, anyways, it it was a really fun thing to make, but it was it was a much bigger thing that I think benefits from not being the bigger thing. And that is it for the latest episode of Tracks. Thank you again for being with us and for sticking with us. We know for sure there's going to be another episode next month when we're going to be covering Strength of the World from City of Evil, a Western epic, taking in Ennio Morricone and all kinds of amazing stuff. So make sure you're subscribed. Make sure you are in the Death Bats Club Discord where we'll be asking for your questions for all things strength of the world and I have been Terry Bees Beezer here for Tracks, the official Avenged Sevenfold podcast. Thanks for being here. See you next month. There's no drinking in the studio or whatever it is. The only time actually that we have a, a, a couple of drinks is when we're doing orchestrations. And stuff, and even on this last record, um, this last time, a couple of months ago, we didn't drink until it was done. 
because the one before that, it was on my birthday at Capitol Records. Ringo Starr's there. We share the same birthday, July 7th. He's got his entourage. I was fucking hammered, hammered. M Shadows, fucking hammered. And it took us, I, I was locked into this little interim thing with their, where they store a big piano where nothing can you know make the piano reverberate or, or resonate or do any of these things to getting these sympathetic tones that come across. So I'm locked in this thing analyzing a choir part, uh, the end choir part to Roman Sky, which harmonically goes everywhere. And I thought, you know, we can kind of wing this thing. Um, it wasn't written out, just things that I'd kind of written on piano here and there on our software and stuff here. And I thought it was going to be a piece of cake and it, it just changes keys a billion fucking... Anyway, hammered, trying to find each individual note while Matt's out there talking to the choir and you can just see the looks on their faces. It's like they came in being funny. We're trying to do it and we, we just can't get the music out of them. We're like, oh my God, this is going to take some real mathematist science type of stuff. And so I, I locked myself into a closet and did it. Anyway, I probably won't be drinking and, uh, and working uh, again. 